0: everyone and welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza the podcast. My name is Lily and I'm your host for this show. So what is this about you ask? Great question. So let's answer it. So How to Win Friends and Influenza is a fortnightly podcast about life in medicine with no affiliation whatsoever with Dale Carnegie. It's all about interviewing insightful, influential people in the medical industry. We particularly focus on career, finding out what different specialties involve, and sharing wise advice that our guests wish they'd been told when they were going through their early days. But luckily, this is a place for you to learn from their life experiences, all from the comfort of your own home, or on the train, or on the toilet, or wherever you're listening to this. But who is this podcast designed for, you ask? Another excellent question. So if you're a medical student, junior doctor, or someone hoping to study medicine in the future, this is for you. Going through medical school teaches many really interesting facts, and especially the skill of doing a lot of study in a very short time just before exams. But learning about the career side of things isn't part of the formal curriculum. So this podcast is designed to answer many of your unasked questions about life as a doctor, how to choose a specialty, working conditions, all those other sorts of things that you can't learn from a textbook. But it seems you have yet another question. What's so great about medicine that you want to talk about it outside the hospital, you ask? Well, okay, now you're asking too many questions and you have to stop. But let's still answer that one. So medicine is pretty amazing when you think about it. It's varied, it's ever-changing, it's interesting, and it's about a cause far greater than just individual self-satisfaction. So the reason we're talking about this is that if you're on the medicine path, I hope you agree with me that it's really pretty amazing and what you want to do is get the most out of it by learning more and more about it And if you're not yet on the medicine path, I hope you join us soon and you get to see what it's all about. So on today's show, we have the very lovely Dr. Sean, who can attest to the very satisfying nature of medicine, specifically through helping patients. He's a specialist immunologist who's led a long, exciting and distinguished career as both a clinician and an academic. And we're very lucky to have him on our show today. So welcome.
1: Thank you for having me as your experimental animal.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for being our first guest. out of what will be a series of many distinguished guests on this show. So this is your first day back at work in the new year.
1: It is. It is. It's always um, a bit of an undertaking to get things up and running again in the new year.
0: Where do immunologists like to go on holidays?
1: Anywhere but a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> you, but know, now you that need to, you're back need, in the to need to escape. Need to escape.
0: <laughs> so let's start off with a basic question. actually, what is immunology?
1: Well immunology is, a, is a, an extraordinary uh, field of medicine because it intersects with virtually every other um, organ system within the body and uh, certainly the thing that attracted me to it is this idea that there was this kind of uh, underlying narrative that might uh, explain all sorts of different things. Uh, in uh, you know health and disease, which uh, goes right through from the ability to survive infectious diseases of childhood uh, right through to the great and terrible autoimmune and inflammatory diseases like multiple sclerosis, RA, etc. Um, so immunolo- immunology is like the secret language that underpins these things, and that attracted me a lot because it seems to me that if we could unlock some of those secrets, many of which remain quite hidden. Uh, that if we could unlock those secrets, that we could really make some progress and some uh, obstacles that have proven to be pretty difficult up until now.
0: Right, so you're kind of like the immune system whisperer.
1: <laughs> I'd like to think so. we' we we're, we're still a long, long way from feeling that we can uh, w- whisper the immune system into doing what we wanted to do. <laughs> At the moment, our tools are pretty blunt, but they're improving very rapidly.
0: So something for the future.
1: Something it's definitely, definitely for the future. It's for, it's for now, and it's for the future.
0: Right. so. If you had to explain in, let's say, two sentences to someone off the street who'd never, you know, learned what any word ending in ology meant, what's the really basic way you would explain it?
1: Um, That's a good question. It's difficult to explain, and as you being uh, in the the system will know that uh, it's very badly taught and explained, and that makes life very difficult. Um, essentially the way I would explain it to a layperson would be to say that, the, um, that we need to be able to fight off infections. Uh, every organism needs to be able to fight off infections and we need a system that's very powerful for doing that. Uh, that's probably is all I would s- explain yep. at that level. Uh, however for people in the who have got any kind of biological or medical insight I, I would go further and say that this is a system that intersects with wound repair and with organization of our tissues uh, and right through to um, all of those diseases that I mentioned, the, uh, the great and terrible diseases of medicine, uh, which uh, have proven you know, a real problem.
0: Is there a single disease in immunology that's really the hot topic at the moment?
1: The biggest thing, unquestionably, is the immune response to cancer, which is is really going to turn into one of the important themes for the next decade in medicine, Uh, this discovery that the immune system really does uh, recognise cancers when they form, certainly many, if not most cancers, but is specifically inactivated by that cancer for the cancer's uh, survival and the fact that it's possible to manipulate that uh, in the form of immune therapies against cancer is unquestionably the hottest topic uh, in an internal medicine, I'd argue, uh, right across the board at the moment.
0: Yeah, and it's actually quite amazing all the medical advances that we come through, all the treatments that are now becoming available for cancer, which actually leads us to a good topic, which is the past. Um, so, so what I'm really curious about is What's your medical career been like? Can you take us through a snapshot from when you were a student? I'll yeah, yeah up.
1: sure. So if you were, you were to ask me as a student whether I would do uh, immunology, <laughs> yeah. I would just uh, flatly deny it. Uh, you know, I would say that would be impossible because I certainly did not enjoy immunology as a student. Uh, and it's interesting to think why that might be the case. I was very keen on cancer, actually, and um, I thought that I would probably end up being a cancer specialist down the track. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed, and I, and I have to go back to the kind of uh, time when I was a student and a junior doctor uh, to think about the context and how that influenced me. So one of the things I noticed is we worked our way through um, what, what was called in my medical course, Abnormal Structure and Function, which was basically a, a course in various kinds of pathology is that every organ had its inflammatory disease, but each disease was treated as an entity that existed in isolation in its own right. Um, And I observed, uh, even back then as a student, that there had to be some similarity between diseases like, for example, multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, even though they were treated by very different specialists in very different ways. Uh, There had to be some kind of hidden connection between those sorts of conditions, and I was kind of intrigued about that. Um, And then probably two things happened, uh, not wanting to reveal too much about how far back we're going (laughs) in this story, but... Uh, there are two things that happened that really, really probably shifted me towards immunology. One, of course, is the uh, December 1981 New England Journal article that described the emergence of a new immunodeficiency in the form of HIV and the understanding that this was a disease of unknown cause, at least at that time, but that was taking apart the human immune system. Um, and that was uh, obviously a hugely important and continues to be a massive uh, crisis around the world. Uh, But the other is perhaps more subtle and arguably the biggest influence on me of all was the 1984 Nobel Prize in Medicine, which was for a discovery in 1975 of the ability to take immunized spleen cells and fuse them with malignant myeloma cells uh, to produce uh, any antibody of any specificity, uh, which has subsequently been called monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies seem to me to be the dawn of this kind of uh, smart bomb approach to either therapeutic um, management uh, of disease but also the basic science investigation with the ability to suddenly figure out surface markers that led to all those wonderful CD markers that you you know very well. Uh, Those CD markers uh, pretty much didn't exist when I was a medical student um, and so the ability to separate out different cells of different function from peripheral blood or from tissues for example wasn't really possible. Um, and so the idea that we had suddenly had this ability to do this on an in industrial scale I thought that that would be massively influential as it's turned out to be. We now have uh, the leading pharmaceuticals in the world are the, uh, basically the direct descendants of those incredible discoveries and, and what an extraordinary thing to think to do to fuse uh, immunised cells with uh, malignant myeloma cells to achieve that. It still staggers me that invention which I regard as one of the greatest uh, in medicine, and um, and deeply influenced my choices uh, in, with with respect to career. Yeah,
0: I think that's a really interesting contrast because on the surface, um, fields like immunology and oncology they, they do have a very depressing aspect to it because um, there is a lot of sort of tragedy out there that is difficult to solve. But at the same time, it's a field of such promise because we do have so many advances. And like you said, we didn't know about CD markers before. That's a huge thing. And we have so much more medicine now. So. It's an interesting mix of, of potential and also sadness. Well,
1: I, I, would, I would sort of counter that to a certain extent, is that uh, even though our tools, as I mentioned, are pretty blunt for treating mm. immune diseases, by and large, chronic inflammatory diseases are treatable diseases. Um, we need to get a hell of a lot better at treating them. But in, our, in my practicing lifetime, I've seen these dramatic changes in the paradigms that have underpinned the treatment. So, for example, when I was a medical student doing rheumatology, you would have um, patients lined up with destructive rheumatoid arthritis changes in their hands, and it's now very difficult to find any patient with destructive joint disease to teach medical students in the clinics because those diseases are being treated very effectively. And those uh, massive shifts that have happened uh, in my practicing career are tremendously rewarding. Now, does that mean that we've got far enough yet? The answer to that is resoundingly no. We've got far more mysteries than we've got knowledge, so uh, there's still a long way to go.
0: Well, speaking of acute and chronic in patients, what's your mix of patients that you would see? Is it on the spectrum of emergency where you'll see many, many patients over a short period of time or maybe more towards palliative care where it's very... um, you know, individualized sort of personal relationships?
1: Yeah, we try. So there's a very limited amount of palliative care. When I first started doing HIV medicine, um, I thought that it was effectively palliative care. The diagnosis generally meant a diagnosis of death. Um, and, uh, you know, we treated people as vigorously as we could, but generally the outcome was death. Um, That is not the case in HIV anymore. The outcome now is a very near normal life expectancy. If patients can be attracted to and and get themselves really committed to ongoing uh, medical therapy, they can live uh, close to normal life expectancy. So that again is a transformation that's happened in my lifetime through antiretroviral therapy. Um, But um, I think the the outcomes of most of our patients uh, with chronic inflammatory diseases has been uh, one of ongoing medical care with a model of disease suppression rather than cure. And I think that uh, has its attractions. Uh, The attractions, of course, is that you get to know people very well over a number of years. You get to go through certain aspects of their... A journey with their disease and its impact on their families uh, and you get to become a certain figure within that, um, hopefully a favourable figure within that <laughs> construct, um, but uh, I felt that that was the right model for me personally, that I wanted to be involved in people with, uh, who had diseases that uh, I could get to know and I could be involved with their uh, care in an ongoing way and where there was at least the potential to make a difference to the clinical outcome.
0: Right, and how long are we talking for these relationships? Is it a matter of months or years that you might see the same patient? Well,
1: so so a limited number of patients I've been I've been seeing for more than a decade or so. Right. Um, but there are, um, you know, there are the majority of medicine is is turnover medicine to a certain extent where people come in with much less complex uh, conditions and they're being assessed to find out whether they've got a disease or whether the disease construct is right or. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you would analyze my clinic, a proportion of these patients that I know very well over a long period of time. Um, but there's a lot of uh, new patients and a lot of turnover as well.
0: Okay, and at what stage would patients get referred to you, say, from GPs or from the rest of the hospital? Yeah,
1: so, so GPs uh, refer quite a lot. Some of the things that we do is allergic disease, for example, right. so that a lot of that comes from the general practice world. Um, but in uh, most chronic inflammatory diseases that we get referred from other specialists uh, um, most often. Um, so patients have entered the system through a hospital and have been picked up by another specialist and have been handed on um, because there might be some expertise that has felt that that I might be able to contribute.
0: And in terms of working with other professionals, other healthcare professionals, is immunology a very solitary sort of um, thing or would you go to a lot? Well, I talk. I
1: talk about with my trainees. I talk about what I call immunology's foreign policy, and uh, what I mean by that is that really we need to constantly interact with other specialties, and we're looking at multidisciplinary care models. and And arguably, immunology's failing as a specialty is that it hasn't been as interactive as it as it could have been over the years. Uh, And there are complex reasons uh, for that, but um, I'll give you an example is that one of my subspecialty interests is in neuroimmunology. That's uh, an inflammatory disease affecting the nervous system and and uh, I have a weekly clinic with, uh, where, where I'm with neurologists. I go to meetings, uh, international meetings, where I'm at neurology meetings. Uh, sometimes I'm looked at a bit oddly when I show up there, but uh, <laughs> then I point out that half of the therapeutics that they're using are in fact immune uh, drugs, and I think there's plenty of r- room for synergy there. And it's also interesting in a more philosophical bent that when you look at the origin of profound innovation whether in no matter what field it is, it often occurs in the gray zone intersection between two apparently unrelated disciplines. And I've always felt that is very interesting from the point of view of trying to push medicine forward is to, is to find those intersections wherever they are. It's not always easy to do, but um, that has to be the future in medicine is to look for those, look for those synergies.
0: What's an example of one of those synergies? Well,
1: uh, neuroimmunology is a pla- classic example. I mean, uh, neurologists have a lot to learn when they become neurologists, and they don't spend a lot of time learning immunology, and yeah. vice versa. So immunologists don't spend a lot of time learning neurology. So there's always a slightly uncomfortable uh, you know, relationship that needs to form there because Although there are separate skill sets, there's also a patient that sits between us that, that might benefit from our input, so that really relies on us to, um, to to get a lot better in those areas. But in other industries, uh, you know, the intersection between unrelated disciplines, you know, having physicists involved in designing MRI machines right. or that sort of thing is, yeah. uh, is the sort of thing that might, um, you know, might be another example of those intersections.
0: Okay. Now, chatting a bit more about the work involved in immunology. So, immunology is of course already a specialization in itself. Within immunology, do different doctors look at different diseases, or as an immunologist, would you cover everything?
1: Yeah. So, so, so to get your ticket as an immunologist, you need to have gone through your resident years. You do a physician exam, um, and that is a generic, uh, basic physician training exam, which enables you to subspecialize in multiple different disciplines. But then you would go on to a specific training in immunology and allergy um, and in my case uh, also in immunopathology in the laboratory specialty. Um, so I'm jointly trained in those two areas because there's a very close connection of course between laboratory medicine, basic science and, and the clinical immunology practice. And then once one is lucky enough to get themselves into a job then there's the potential for the development of subspecialty interests, really, which follows a combination of the things that most engage you, uh, the one that things that you can most contribute to, but also just simply issues of of opportunity that arise within whatever health context you arise in, so uh, there may be a particular need in the hospital that you're dealing with, there might be a transplant unit or something like that that requires an assistance from an immunologist, and and that might have taken me in a very different direction in my career, but in my particular situation, it's evolved uh, through HIV, chronic inflammatory disease and neuroimmunology into the things that currently engage me.
0: Right and um, now you mentioned a laboratory aspect to your training could you talk a bit more about that and which kinds of students might want to look into that
1: yeah so um, it's possible to train as a after you know once you have your uh, medical degree in a discipline of pathology such as anatomical pathology uh, but there are several specialties that have a clinical side and a laboratory site and these would include hematology for example microbiology and infectious disease would be another example and immunology is uh, one that that shares that uh, and so we uh, run a laboratory that is involved with uh, autoimmune serology and immunodeficiency testing and flow cytometry and a whole series of other things, which is an integral part of, a, of our kind of clinical and pathology services.
0: Okay. And overall, is it a difficult, I mean, this is a bit of a biased question to ask you, is it a difficult pathway to go down? What, what do you think people should be aware of before they start the Yeah, look,
1: I, I mean, I don't, I don't think everybody's going to roll out and become an <laughs> immunologist. A lot, of, a lot of people will say immunology is their worst thing. They can't stand <laughs> immunology. And, uh, and, you know, I must admit, I probably sat in that camp for a short time as a, as a student. Um, I I um, I don't think there is any medical specialty of any kind which is easy. And one of the things that all physicians uh, and um, medical practitioners must confront is that no matter what they are doing, they are skirting at the edges of the depth of knowledge in their own specialty. And that's a very difficult thing intellectually to, to cope with. It's very easy to be dissatisfied with yourself as a result of that. So immunology is so so detailed and large as a specialty it has a um, extremely large basic science um, uh, you know context of which clinical immunology evolves from and it's certainly possible for me to go to a clinic, uh, to a basic science immunology conference and only to be able to hang on to only parts of the concepts that are being actually discussed uh, so so it is certainly challenging and difficult to find the right mix of expertise uh, that can be translated in the, in the clinical context.
0: Do you think there's any particular personality type that might be better suited to immunology or if you have a particular preference for a kind of task?
1: I think you know the way in which it's been described by one of my colleagues who's a rheumatologist is that an immunologist can be described as someone who has a, in quote marks, a gel level interest in medicine. And what that, what, he, what he means to say by that is someone who's genuinely curious about what uh, what uh, the laboratory assay might actually look like in this individual patient and uh, that's not for everybody. Some people okay. would prefer to stick with clinical phenomenology and to, and to treat patients according to well-defined algorithms uh, and protocols of treatment that have been established uh, either by themselves or by others um, and so immunology is a specialty that is definitely not for, for everybody. Uh, it does require some fluidity of thinking and sometimes that's a bit exhausting. So maybe that's, maybe that's something that someone would need to consider if they were thinking about it as a specialty.
0: Sure. Okay. So this is purely anecdotal, but I've heard some people say they could be interested in say emergency or ICU. And so they sort of pair these specialties together. Now, are there any other specialties perhaps similar to immunology that people might be interested in? So maybe immunology isn't quite for them, but they like some part of it?
1: Yeah, so I think one really strong concept for people who are intrigued by aspects of immunology but are not, uh, are not destined to be immunologists would be to dive deep into their organ-based specialty and then to develop subspecialist interest in immune manifestations of disease in that organ. And every single organ of the body has some kind of uh, chronic inflammatory disease uh, and also manifestations of immunodeficiency. So I've emphasized inflammation, but there's all sorts of other ways the immune system goes wrong. Uh, Hypersensitivity, uh, immunodeficiency, unwanted inflammation and uh, that provides people an opportunity to to dive uh, very deep into immunology. So if you were to use um, an example of uh, kidney medicine, uh, uh, nephrology, many subspecialist uh, nephrologists are really practicing as immunologists. They're transplantation immunologists and they are interested in the immune mechanisms of injury to the glomerulus, for example. And uh, so that's a a perfectly legitimate, and in reality, the most common way in which people would keep uh, some immunology practice uh, alive for themselves.
0: Sure. Now, as an immunologist, what would your typical day look like? You've just run us through me yeah sure
1: so so I do clinics every day so I see patients every day generally for half of that day in a clinic setting and then there'll be some uh, consultations and some ward rounds that need to be done there'll be some medical student teaching somewhere along the way and there'll be some laboratory um, results that need to be uh, processed or need to be activated and then along the way there'll be uh, quite a lot of administrative load for my particular uh, for my particular sure. uh, role and um, and then there'll be uh, what we hope is left, which is that um, blue sky inquiry aspect of it, which is the research that we really hope to do in, in pursuing uh, new solutions in in our um, in our process. You know, in our specialty. One of the things that I somewhat regret, but has also been a relief to discover is that to conduct really world-class research is, is now essentially a full-time, um, you know, ultra-committed um, specialty generally located within a large research institution. Um, the old model, in fact, which existed very widely when I was a medical student of the physician scientist who was um, seeing a lot of patients and also uh, running high-level research has become increasingly difficult to stay afloat with great regret that that, that happens. But also once you realize that, in fact, that environment is very difficult to sustain, that it's difficult to be both a good physician and a good, uh, certainly basic science researcher, once that realisation happens, it comes as a certain sense of relief because there's a lot of people running to stand still who are attempting to keep those things afloat. Um, it's regrettable because clinicians uh, certainly have lots to offer in terms of the agenda of basic science research, at least to the extent of contributing to new strategies to get uh, patients with chronic illness better.
0: Now linking that in with the career if someone were to purely pursue immunology as a clinical aspect with no research would that hinder them in any way
1: Yeah so that's a great question and in fact that's a very that's a very hot topic at the moment uh, in our specialty because the training is long uh, people get exhausted in the training <laughs> And when you add a PhD, uh, which I did uh, on the end of my clinical and laboratory training, it's sort of pushing you up towards your um, certainly late 20s, early 30s. By the time you're in a position to apply for your first job, that's what I call a very prolonged adolescence. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I went in and did a basic science PhD, which has influenced me very deeply in my thinking all the way through Um and it was it was fun uh it was uh you know i was involved in making um, uh, gene targeted knockout mice uh, so we're dialing up uh, genetic engineering of mice in order to achieve a better understanding of the tnf molecule which is uh, which is a key inflammatory cytokine um, and uh, I never imagined in all my dreams that I'd end up sort of uh, having mice uh, distributed all around the world with carrying a genetic mutation that I basically drew out on a on a blank sheet of paper as a PhD student. Wow, so, yeah. so those sorts of things, um, just life experiences, you know, sometimes you look at it and say, was that, did that send me in any particular direction that was useful? And you never know at the time whether it does. Nevertheless, it's just part of the, you know, the the story of, uh, of a career that's taken me in all sorts of different directions and which has been you know deeply rewarding in that regard.
0: Speaking of life experience, could you tell us about a time that you might have acted differently anywhere in your past, something you would have done differently and on the flip side something that worked out really really well that you're really happy with?
1: It's a bit easier to talk about what really went well. <laughs> um, One of the best things I ever did was at the end of my residence, or in the middle of my residency years, I took a year off and backpacked around the world. That's unquestionably the best thing, the best choice that I ever made. I mean that again influenced me very deeply and it helps uh, to counter some of the desocialization that happens with with, uh, this long medical training um, process. In terms of things I would do differently, I'm in a lucky situation of saying I have you know, no regrets. There's no real reason for me to regret any uh, major decisions that I made. There were certainly periods that were long and seemed like I, I wanted to get out of them, um, but, that, but that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that I regret them or that I would have, uh, would have done things differently. So uh, it's nice to be able to say that.
0: Yeah, that is a good thing to hear. And I suppose the message there is that it can get tough, as in any specialty within medicine, but if you just keep going through it. Yeah, I think one of, one of the
1: things that people, when we talk about training being very long, it's, it's unquestionably very long, and I think that there are some problems about the way in which it continues to extend. It's getting longer and longer, and it's not getting easier to, to get through to the end of it. However, when, if, as I said, you're applying for your first jobs and, and you, by the time you're 30 or in your early 30s, you, if you're successful in those applications, you you might be in that position for another 35 years. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's likely to be a lot more fluid uh, migration between jobs, uh, you know, than there has been in my career, the way things have worked. But, um, you know, once you're in that position for such a long duration, you want to have been in the right place. So, I would um, I'd sort of suggest to people who are feeling that their training and their journey is very long is to say that, you know, don't rush to be in a, in a position where, where things become I- relatively inflexible because, you know, that's a long, that's a long road. So, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the long period of training and those interesting different experiences just sort of add to a, you know, a kind of a richer experience of your, of your career.
0: Okay, great. The final thing I want to talk about is just another very hot topic all across the field of medicine, which is work-life balance. Now in immunology, at least in your experience, have you found that to be difficult or quite doable?
1: Yeah, look, the way I'd put work-life balance is absolutely essential. There's a huge amount of burnout in medicine. There's probably a lot of depression in medicine. Um, We know that, you know, drug and alcohol and all sorts of other uh, psychiatric conditions are prevalent amongst medical practitioners. And I don't think as a specialty that we've dealt with that very well. I think the solution overall is, is to accept that there are certain periods of time where you really need to dig very deep. In, in order to get your next uh, milestone out of the way and that in the context of those you will not have balance you know the concept of balance while you're digging deep and getting those tickets is not what you should be seeking what you should be seeking is to take that about as far as you possibly can because that's going to be the building block uh, that you're going to rely on for many years to come. On the other hand, once those milestones have been achieved, you need to exit and find a way of uh, calling down and uh, trying to reconstruct three-dimensional aspects of your life and relationships and you know and that example of traveling uh, you know for a year was was a great example for me, but there are all sorts of other things taking taking sabbaticals or taking periods of leave and uh, you know changing subspecialties, doing other things. Um, I think uh, your generation, frankly, will be a lot better at work-life balance than ours has been. Or, and certainly my seniors, if you were to look at the sort of average working week of, yep. of you know, white males, which I am, a white male, uh, you know, in the generation above me, it would have been 100 to 120 hours a week as um. a professional person. And then for in my generation, generally 60 to 80 hours a week of work and then in the generations that follow it won't be anything like that. Um, And that's a good thing. On the other hand, the things that have sustained uh, teaching hospitals and the life of teaching hospitals has been very much dependent on the ability of uh, physicians to support, for example, Saturday morning ward rounds for trainees or for Uh, supporting academic presentations and various other things like that so it's not really clear how we can transition medicine into a to a more balanced work life um, relationship uh, without losing some of the things that we hold very dear within our own specialties and I I would hate to think that in pursuit of work-life balance as a primary aim that our that our academic institutions and our hospitals become kind of desert zones uh, in comparison to what they have been, which have been very rich environments for people to uh, to learn and interact with others, and also to look after people uh, in need.
0: Yeah, so you raise some really good points. There's more to the work-life balance story than just getting all the hobby time. There's
1: a bit of a trade-off there. Yeah, so work-life balance is not all about the balance side of it, no. it's a bit of it about the work side of it. So because you know there's some really nice uh, research in terms, of, um, in terms of what makes a job a successful job to actually be involved with. And one is the sense of making a contribution, a so-called efficacy which actually turns out to be the most important of all contribution if you're working in, in a job where you feel as though you're making a difference. Um, you you enjoy you tend to be engaged with that job where the counter is, is certainly true and so if we uh, de-skill or if we um, lack the kind of necessary involvement that is required for us to feel efficacy within our roles and not just to be completely overwhelmed with its complexity and, and uh, and difficulty, then um, you know, then it w- we won't we won't achieve what we really need. So I would I, I think hard work has still definitely got a place in medicine, but I think we need to get better at it from than where we've been.
0: Now you just mentioned the point of efficacy, which I think is a fantastic thing for us to end on, because I know you've told me some really great stories about. Um, patients that you've really helped, and they've they've just been really um, satisfied, and that's a really amazing thing. Could you tell us one of these stories?
1: Oh, look, it's uh, look, there are so many of those. I mean, that's what that's what many people, not everybody, gets into medicine to to do would be to look at um, you know to uh, first meet patients who are in genuine life crisis, and then to go through a journey with them. Some of those don't work out well, obviously, because uh, you know humans die of fatal diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is Often the case, but on the other hand, um, you know, to find, particularly in this world of new therapeutics, to find a therapy that's able able to unlock a disease that hasn't otherwise been able to be treated, uh, and then to see people improve, or return to work, or return to their families, etc., is deeply, deeply rewarding. There are so many of those stories I won't pick them out, and for some of them, for privacy reasons, I sure. couldn't do that. But, but you know, that is that's, and that in immunology is one of the great attractions because once we do unlock whatever it is that's driving this immune system insane, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's possible to get it to sit down and behave itself and that's uh, that's great to be involved with.
0: And I feel like that would be a couple more no- Nobel Prizes, if someone could figure that out.
1: Yeah, yeah there's a few more Nobel Prizes waiting in, uh, in immunology, don't you worry about that.
0: Well thank you so much for your time Sean.
1: Yeah, it's um, a pleasure.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been excellent having you on the show and I hope that's given people a bit more of an idea of what immunology is like and um, some of the training and some of the benefits that it involves. So thank you so much and we'll see you in the next show.
1: Uh, All the very best.